here we are now with another episode of the Andrew Lake Podcast. My name is Dosta, and today I'd like to talk about Abraham Maslow. Of course, he's a world-famous and well-known psychologist. And I'd like to talk more specifically about his book with the title, Religions, Values, and Peak Experiences. Now, in this book, he points out something that is timeless. He points out things that everyone has to grapple with as they go through life. I point out, he points out stages of development that occur for everyone at different times in their life, and there are issues here which are foundational to the human condition. And I'm going to be reading some things that have struck me in this book, and we can talk about them together. And I think you'll see, you'll agree that these are things that everyone should know about. Everyone has to deal with. It's something that we all need to know. So religions, values, and peak experiences. Can you see how these things are all connected? Can you see how important it is for us to have an intelligent way of talking about these things, of thinking about these things? Do you have a real clear understanding of what religions are? Is it clear to you how value structures work? And do you have peak experiences? Is that something that is strange? Is that a strange term for you? Or is it something that's normal for you? I don't know if it's even possible for peak experiences to be normal, but he talks about this in this wonderful book. Abraham Maslow is probably most often associated with the hierarchy of needs. Usually when people hear the name Maslow, they think of that pyramid where you have at the bottom your shelter, your food, your warmth, your comfort, these sorts of things. And then on another level, you need your community, you need your friendships, you need your sense of belonging, these things. And then on another level, up the pyramid, you need your sense of contribution, your sense of significance, and then further on, your actualization and your higher values. Probably less known is that Abraham Maslow then went on to do higher development things. And he even has a book called Towards a Psychology of Being. And in that book, And in a lot of ways of looking at Abraham Maslow, you can actually see that there's another pyramid. So it's not just a pyramid where there's a base going to a peak, but he also had an upside down pyramid that started after that, which was a a point going out upwards to a base. Well, it's not a base, it's just an upside down pyramid, but you can imagine that. So that's this big difference that he made between actualization as doing and effort 
and working towards it and actualization of being actual and being. So this is the distinction between being and doing. Now in that top higher pyramid, it's not about doing. It's not about achieving or action or working. It's more about uh, higher values which you must accept and states which you must accept. And this book, Religions, Values and Peak Experiences, gets more into that sort of thing. So if you're not familiar with Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that's a great model. And we can stick, if you stick that into the, like a Ken Wilber integral theory sort of matrix, it falls in the category of developmental waves. So you've got your Eric Erickson, you've got your Piaget, you've got your spiral dynamics, you've got your Gene Gebser, and then you put in Abraham Maslow, and they're waves, they're horizontal waves or levels that people go through. And that's different to lines or types or states or things like that. So I hope that's not too much of a rabbit hole. If you can't understand that, it's not too much of a, a problem. It's just that you can look at Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs as a developmental psychology map. And there are others that fit that. It just It's just like a matter of how close the rungs of the ladder are together. And if you have multiple developmental psychology maps, then you can see the, the similarities and also how they're different to things like multiple intelligences. But that's just another side note. What we're talking about here is this book, Religions, Values, and Peak Experiences. And this is core issues. This is the ultimate concern. This is something that threads through. These are things that thread through all levels of development. And they interact with where you're at in different ways. So this is very, this is, well, I guess it's both foundational and it's high level. So let me read something that came up first. This was the first thing that I felt to share with you from the preface, preface. And he writes, quote, I see in the history of many organized religions a tendency to develop two extreme wings, the mystical and individual on the one hand and the legalistic and organizational on the other. The profoundly and authentically religious person integrates these trends easily and automatically. The forms, rituals, ceremonials, and verbal formulae in which he was reared remain for him experientially rooted and also symbolically meaningful, archetypal, unitive. Such a person may go through the same motions and behaviors as his more numerous co-lingurinists or the people that he's sitting alongside of in church or wherever they are. Quote continues, but he is never reduced to the behavioral as most of them are. 
most people lose or forget the subjectively religious experience and redefine religion as one, a set of habits, behaviors, dogmas, forms, which are at the extreme become entirely legalistic and bureaucratic, conventional, empty, and in the truest meaning of the word, anti-religious. The mystic experience, the illumination, the great awakening, along with the charismatic seer who started the whole thing, are forgotten, lost, or transformed into their opposites. Organized religion, the churches, finally may become the major enemies of the religious experience and the religious experiencer. Now this really gets to the heart of the matter. This is the point of the whole thing. This is the point of religion. This is the point of the human story. And if you can get your head around this, so much is going to become clear. So much is going to become simple. In essence, what he's saying in this quote is that the religious experience is one thing, and then religious practice is another. You can have a religious feeling, and you can have a religious behavior. And these are two different things. So the mystical and the individual, on the one hand, is the personal phenomenological experience. And the legalistic and organizational, on the other, that's like the, the conformity, the rules, the follow the crowd, do as you're told, fit in with the religion. That's the collective nature of religion. Now, here's the secret to all religion, and this is a simple way to put it. Religion is the attempt to put a personal experience into the masses. Think of it this way. Say we have one of these people that Abraham Maslow is talking about. He says someone who is charismatic, a seer, someone who is uh, you know, illuminated and has a great awakening, this sort of person. Who, who the religion is founded upon. So anyone who's founded a religion or the head of a religion, so Jesus for Christianity or Muhammad for Islam or the Buddha for Buddhism, these sorts of characters, let's say they're going along one day and they have one of these experiences and they say, wow, this is great. I should share it with people. Someone else should have this. Wouldn't it be great if everyone could feel what I feel, see what I see, experience what I experience. And therein is the point where religion starts. Well, how do I get them to do it? How do I, trans, how do I translate this feeling? How do I communicate this or export this thing that I have, this phenomenological 
uh, there's so many words for it. There's so many things that that that, that seems to to stir up, which is well for me. It seems uh, the reason I'm grappling with words is because it's beyond words. I'm I'm already in touch with that. Even now, as I talk, it's it's. I am now venturing. We are venturing into this right now as we speak. So he says, "Well, say these words and do these chants and do these movements, because when I do them, somehow it seems that it'll work for you." And what works for me must work for you in some sense, at least in some way. And here's the thing. It's actually important to know that this conformity and these rules and this organized religion is important. And it does work in at least some sense. When you do the words of a religious leader or the actions of a religious leader, you do get something of what they were trying to convey. Now, it's not pure and it's not absolute. And it's not that it can't be adult, uh, uh, tainted and mixed up and had all these problems with it. But there is something in it. So it's not fair to say that that one is all or the other. And this is a dichotomy which Maslow is pointing out. Now, I'll read a little bit more from this book. Quote, Not only must the experimental be stressed and brought back into psychology and philosophy as an opponent of the merely abstract and abstruse of the a priori of what I have called helium field words, it must then also be integrated with the abstract and the verbal we must, we must make a place for experientially based concepts and for experientially filled words. That is, for an experienced based rationality in contrast to the a priori rationality that we have come almost to identify with rationality itself. He continues, The same th- sort of thing is true for the relations between experientialism and social reform. Short-sighted people make them opposites, mutually exclusive. Of course, historically, this has often happened and does totally still happen in many ways. But it need not happen. It is a mistake. An atomistic error. An example of the dichotomizing and pathologizing that goes along with immaturity. The empirical fact is that self-actualizing people, our best experiences, are also our most compassionate, our great improvers and reformers of society, our most effective fighters against injustice, inequality, slavery, cruelty, exploitation and also our best fighters for excellence, effectiveness, competence. And it also becomes clearer and clearer that the best helpers are the most fully human persons. 
what I may call the bodhisattvaic path is an integration of self-improvement and social zeal, i.e. the best way to become a better helper is to become a better person. But one necessary aspect of becoming a better person is via helping others. So one must and can do both simultaneously. So here he's saying that this bridge between the personal experience and the practices or the rules or the collective structures that we have is an ebbing, flowing thing that needs to be ever improved. It's a dynamic thing which changes with the times. And that's why he's talking about an experienced-based rationality in contrast to the a priori rationality. Now, when we say rationality, that's a psychology. That's a way of talking about things. And it's very easy for us to get carried off in a way to, well, it's not just rules and it's not just the conformity and practices of religion. It's also the mental activity. It's also psychology itself. Psychology is thought. Psychology is words. And that's distinctly different to the experientially based or a a phenomenological based uh, part of the part of the, the the picture that we're trying to to make here. It's the the mental activity and the experiential activity must be separated, and it's possible for the mental activity to go off down a path so far away, removed from the experience that he's that's that's how you get to what he's calling here helium field words. It's these words that are not integrated with the abstract and the verbal. They're not integrated with the. They're not integrated with. The, the, there's no connection. So there has to be. There has to be a connection between the personal experience and the collective reforms or the social reforms that we have for people. It's a subtle difference because it's easy to say we need to bring it back to the individual. We need to make things personal. And even with the postmodern meme of make your own truth or speak your own truth, or what is true for you is true for you, and that's all you need. That's, that's only one part of what Maslow is saying here. He's also saying that we need to connect it with the, the structures that were formed in traditional values. So the traditions and the rules and the things that were created in the dogma of religion and the conservatism of religion, that needs to be integrated. It's not that the individual then comes along and defeats the previous dogma religion waves. 
And he says it well here, and I'll read a little bit more because this really gets to the point of it. Quote, But in recent years, and to this day, most humanistic scholars and most artists have shared in the general collapse of all traditional values. And when these values collapsed, there was no others readily available as replacements. And so today, a very large proportion of our artists, novelists, dramatists, critics, literary and historical scholars are disheartened or pessimistic or despairing, and a fair proportion are nihilistic or cynical in the sense of believing that no good life is possible and that the so-called higher values are all a fake and a swindle. Certainly the young student coming to the study of the arts and the humanities will find therein no inspiring certainalities. What criteria of selection does he have between, let us say, Tolstoy and Kafka, between Renoir and de Kooning, or between Brahms and Cage? And which well-known artist or writers today are trying to teach, to inspire, to conduce to virtue? Which of them could even use this word virtue without gagging? Upon which of them can an idealistic young man model himself? Well, that really gets to the point, which is, who is the stand-up guy? Who is the person who is our beacon of hope? Who is someone we can say, yes, you are a virtuous person? We can model ourselves on you. And the collapse of the religious values was a failure, was because there was this failure of communicating the religious experience which our religious founders had to the people of our day, to us in our day. And this continues in our day. This, is, this book was written, believe it or not, in 1964. Now, the collapse of your religion or your belief structure or your cultural structure, that's something that everyone goes through. Even if you weren't very religious, even if you didn't per se have a religion when you were a child in your family, you still have a moment where you come out of your family and you say, well, these are all the things they did and believed, but why? Now I can believe whatever I want, I can do whatever I want, and there's the drama. Now, for some people, it's more dramatic than others. If you have a great yearning for something deep and you want to be in the profound and you want to have higher values and there's a call for you, then that shift out of your family and out of your culture is going to be very dramatic. It's going to be significant to you. And it's possible that you get left with this nihilism, which he's talking about, of the novelists, the artists, the, drama, the dramatists. They're nihilistic and cynical because they realize well enough that the religious figures didn't communicate what they wanted to, 
And it, it goes beyond that because you're really thinking you, you, you can't see that. You think that the religious figures are fake. You think they're wrong. So you don't think that what they were communicating was communicated in a bad way. You think that they were completely wrong and that they were phony. So you don't believe any of it. Which makes it impossible for you to have this religious experience as a possibility within your belief structure. And that's the, that is a surefire way. That is a quick, that is the highway to nihilism. The absence of virtue, of peak experiences, of higher values, that is an ABC for nihilism. And that's why all these novelists and artists and romantics of the 19th century and 20th century even were, were full of so much pain and anguish. It's because their value structures had collapsed and it had been replaced with, with nothing. There had been no deeper meaning, no deeper possibility. So, this is why peak experiences are so important to understand. These human beings that had them and could experience them on a regular basis, they happened they, they really formed into part of their structure. Their whole let's say that their it's almost like their whole life was a peak experience. For someone like Jesus or the Buddha, or a Lao Tzu, or a Mohammed, or a Socrates. These sorts of people, it's like they have, uh, they're, they're peaking continuously. They're on some other plane, they're from some other dimension. And when they're talking, when they're teaching, what they're saying is always from that place. And now we've come along and we've said, okay, the words don't make sense. You haven't communicated what you wanted to, which means that you're completely wrong. What you're saying is not true. But doing that misunderstands this thing of the experience and the words that go with it. The personal experiences, the subjective experiences of these religious people and all the discussions and psychologies, philosophies, and, let's say, religious talk that has followed therein after. So, I'll read a little bit more from this book. And he's talking here about the dichotomies and this difference. There are more ways of that he's talking about this difference between how we talk about things and how we experience things. Quote, And this brings us to the other half of the dichotomy, dichotomized science. Whatever we may say about split-off religion is very similar or complementary to what we may say of split-off science. For instance, in the division of the ideal and the actual Dichotomized science claims that it deals only with the actual and the existent and that it has nothing to do with the ideal, that is to say, with the ends, the goals, the purposes of life, i.e. 
with end values. Any criticism that could be made of half religion can equally be made of half science in a complementary way. For instance, corresponding to the blind religion's reduction to the abstract, its blindness to the raw fact, to concrete, to living human experience itself, we find in non-aspiring science a reduction to the concrete, of the kind that Goldstein has described, and to the tangible and immediately visible and audible. It becomes amoral, even sometimes anti-moral and even anti-human, merely technology which can be bought by anyone for any purpose, like the German scientists who could work with equal zeal for Nazis, communists, or for Americans. We have been taught very amply in the last few decades that science can be dangerous to human ends and that scientists can become monsters as long as science is conceived to be akin to a chess game and end in itself with arbitrary rules, whose only purpose is to explore the existent, and which then makes the final blunder of excluding subjective experience from the realm of the existent or the explorable. End quote. So if we say religion is the words that try to bridge a person's subjective experience to the collective, then we can say that science is the science is the words that are trying to formalize what it means to have a collection of humans so dogma is not a thing necessarily of religion alone you can have dogmatic science dogmatic religion, and even dogmatic value structures. (laughs) So dogma is, it's it's like this, this set in stone. He calls it reduction to the concrete. It's very clear. It's it's how to say, it's, uh, you, you can't change it. Set in stone. And the, he's saying here that the blind religion's reduction to the abstract, in it, and it happens on both camps. So they both, both sides fall for this. So in good form, Maslow then moves on to actually having a crack at explaining for himself what the religious experience is, or what a peak experience is. So, he's recognized some of the traps and the problems that come with trying to communicate it, and then he's having a go himself, and here's what he has to say about, this is, so this is chapter three, the core religious or transcendent experience. Quote, The very beginning, the intrinsic core, the essence, 
the universal nucleus of every known higher religion, unless he excludes Confucianism, has been the private, lonely, personal illumination, revelation, or ecstasy of some acutely sensitive prophet or seer. The high religions call themselves revealed religions, and each of them tends to rest its validity, its function, and its right to exist on the codification and the communication of this original mystic experience or revelation from the lonely prophet to the mass of human beings in general. He continues, But it has recently begun to appear that these revelations or mystical illuminations can be subsumed under the head of the peak experiences or ecstasies or transcendent experiences, which are now being eagerly investigated by many psychologists. That is to say, it is very likely, indeed almost certain, that these older reports, phrased in terms of supernatural revelation, were in fact perfectly natural, human peak experiences of the kind that can easily be examined today, which however, were phrased phrased in terms of whatever conceptual, cultural, and linguistic framework the particular seer had available in his time. End quote. So this is to say the religious experience is available to anyone who is a human. It's a part of the human condition. And it's one thing to have it and then talk about it and a totally different thing to hear people talking about it. And that therein is where all religions are born and where they come from and, the, and what's going on there. So the, the trick is to, to, to have a peak experience, you basically have to conform. There has to be some sort of giving in to the rules. There has to be some sort of follow the instructions. So you need to have that in your toolkit of value navigating. If you're navigating value spheres, you need to know how to conform. You need to know how to turn up like they do at church, and do what they do. Sit down when they sit down, stand up when they stand up, talk when they talk, read what they read, listen when they listen, sing the same songs, all these sorts of things. Now, it's not just necessarily traditional church. It goes for any institution. And some institutions are, well, we can divide them into two. We can say that there's the institutions which are actually trying to get you to have a peak experience and they know it and the institutions which don't know it and originally their structures were designed for peak experiences but unknowingly. So they're going through the motions without knowing that they are there to create 
a peak experience. Now, if you know that, you can still go to an institution and use it to induce yourself into a peak experience. And you will look like someone who's fallen for the dogma. You'll look like someone who's conformed when really you're doing it under your own awareness, your own autonomy. You're doing it from your own knowledge. So on the surface, you just look like one in the crowd when really you know what's going on. In fact, you know more than the other people than that's going on because you're using these structures to get into these higher states to improve your phenomenological experiencing, which is what these structures were designed for originally. And yet, many of the other people there are not getting that. Now, there is, we're speaking broadly here, so there is a, a spectrum of how effective a structure is. And it's really up to you to experiment. There's no way through, there's no way out of experimenting. There's no way of getting around, you have to try many of them. I can tell you what's good. I can tell you what's worked for me. I can name certain places and I can do things like this. But that's not to say it will work for you. And also there's a certain amount of, there's something to be said about variety. You need to have a range of practices. You need to have a, a, you need to come at it from many different angles. So there's, there's no way around trying lots of different things. Okay, moving along in our conversation, we've got uh, chapter four, organizational dangers to transcendent experiences. So this is when he's talking about the, the institutions or the, the structures that are have come from these individuals who have had peak experiences. And I've just got this short quote here I'd like to share. He says, quote, it, is some, it, it has sometimes seemed to me as I interviewed non-theistic religious people that they had more religious or transcendent experiences than conventionally religious people. This is, so far, only an impression, but it would obviously be a worthwhile research project. Partly this may have been because there were more often, they were more often serious about values, ethics, life philosophy, because they have had to struggle away from conventional beliefs and have had to create a system of faith for themselves individually. End quote. So this is the person who goes to church even though they don't believe in church. This is the person who conforms even though they know there's so much wrong with conformity. This is the person who is, he calls, non-theistic religious people, that they are, that they are more they're more religious than the religious people, the so-called religious people, because they see what's going on and they get more juice out of the institution. And their value structure, their life philosophy, as he calls it, their values, their ethics, are more, they're more rich because they're more serious about it. 
and they're serious because they've had to struggle away from the conventional beliefs. So to come out of your family and to say, why did my family believe this? Why did my culture believe this? Why does everyone do this? And to face the the darkness, the pain, the stress of, oh, everything is pointless, everything is meaningless, and then to rebuild it up, that gives it a tremendous strength. That gives an amazing, that gives an amazing richness to values and to belief systems and to the pers- your perspective on life in general. So I hope this is starting to get a bit of a picture for you of the the difference between a peak experience and a religion and what it means to conform and what it means to navigate a value sphere and what it means to go into something voluntarily. So these appearances don't... It comes back to this old thing that not everything is as it seems. Appearances can be deceiving. Now, I've got this episode where we talk about the movie The Matrix Reloaded. And I've dedicated this episode to the scene where Neo, the hero of the movie, is sitting on a park bench talking to the Oracle, who's this, I guess, guru, enlightened master figure. And they're sitting there on a park bench and it looks absolutely normal. And the first thing he says is, you're not a human, are you? And she says, well, it's tough to get any more obvious than that. And yet the appearance, it's, it's, it's as simple as two people sitting on a park bench and yet there's so much happening there. They're in another world. There's a whole other world going on. So appearances can be deceiving and it's really well when you start to i'm i'm seeing an, a rabbit hole open up and it's turning into more of a more of a black hole rather than a rabbit hole but let, let me let me go off for a little bit now when you start to realize that you can change your internal values and your beliefs around quite a lot and you notice that they're very flexible then things can become unstable and you really can explore some highly adventurous things. And I'm going to be talking about them more in the future at length. But you can, you can change so much in your thoughts and your beliefs and your values with so little of your external world changing. It's astonishing. It's remarkable. Now, what will happen is, of course, your external world will catch up with your internal world. And this is where the whole visualization of this self-help industry comes from. And, and it's, it's really shallow. It's really, it's really so limited. This whole thing of imagine yourself making lots of money. You have to visualize yourself making lots of money. It's, it's really shallow. It doesn't go far at all. Basically, that's an orange meme, rationalist success meme, using visualizations for only their part of 
it's not even interior design. It's just a. It's just a. They've been caught. They're they're still a victim to their own value structures there. So if you if you really open up and you really get into busting through your internal world and your beliefs, and you really explore how far you can take it, then in a time when the time is right and when they're clear to you and when they're settled for you and they're in a place where you know it's right and you're following a path that's right for you, then your external world will catch up with you in time and it will happen like a back and forth in a natural flowing way. And the problem with this whole thing of imagine lots of money and then you'll make it Well, there's a few steps in between there. And also, it might be that imagining lots of money is not what your value structures needs. It's not what your beliefs need. It's not where you need to go. So, yeah, how much... Let me just close that rabbit hole for now, which is that how far you can go in your internal world will will astonish you and i'm going to demonstrate that as we keep talking over the next few days and weeks and months when the time is right <laughs> okay so moving on in our conversation for the day about abraham maslow we come to the uh, the conclusion and it comes back to this thing we were staying we were saying at the very start, which is there's a difference between experience and words. There's a difference between the personal interior world and how we decide to organize ourselves, organize ourselves collectively. So I'd like to read this quote, and this, these are some beautiful words. Quote, There is, then, a road which all profoundly serious, ultimately concerned people of goodwill can travel together for a very long distance. Only when they come almost to its end does the road fork so that they must part in disagreement. Practically everything that, for example, Rudolf Otto defines as characteristic of the religious experience, the holy, the sacred, creature feeling, humility, gratitude, an oblation, thanksgiving, awe, the mysterium, tedium, the sense of the divine, the ineffable, the sense of littleness before mystery, the quality of exaltedness and sublimity, the awareness of limits and even of powerlessness, the impulse to surrender and to kneel, a sense of the eternal and of fusion with the whole of the universe, even the experience of heaven and hell. All of these experiences can be accepted as real by clergymen and atheists alike. And so it is also possible for all of them to accept in principle 
the empirical spirit and empirical methods to humbly admit that knowledge is not complete, that it must grow, that it is in time and space, in history and in culture, and that though it is relative to man's powers and to his limits, it can yet come closer and closer to the truth that is not dependent on man. End quote. Now, this quote of Rudolf Otto, where he's talking about this man, Rudolf, R- Rudolf Otto was a German philosopher, and he wrote this famous book, which is The Idea of the Holy. And this book, The Idea of the Holy, was an attempt, or one of the attempts, to distinguish this difference between experience and words, or peak experiences and values, or religion and peak experiences. He's, he's differentiating these things. And he's also a bit of a theologian. So, the this book, the idea of holy, the idea of the holy, it was, yeah, it's our our words, the holy or this peak experience. He he points out that it can't be described by words. So, there's this quote that I've got here, which I found on Wikipedia. If you look up the idea of holy on Wikipedia, you'll see this. Or if you look up Rudolf Otto. And I'll share this quote with you now. He writes in this book, quote, The feeling of it may at times come sweeping like a gentle tide, pervading the mind with a tranquil mood of deepest worship. It may pass over into a more set and lasting attitude of the soul, continuing as it were, thrilling vibrant and resonant, until at last it dies away and the soul resumes its profane, non-religious mood of everyday experience. It has its crude, barbaric antecedents and early manifestations, and again it may be developed into something beautiful and pure and glorious. It may become the hushed, trembling and speechless humility of the creature in the presence of whom or what, in the presence of that which is a mystery, inaccessible and above all creatures. End quote. So here we get to the contrast of a peak experience with the profane or what he calls the profane, the non-religious mood of everyday experience. And there's a there's a there's something there's something there which is you say, well, you're bored, or I don't know what a peak experience is, or my life has no excitement, or I don't really feel interested in things anymore, and I don't I don't know what to do with my life and things are just things are just going along they're just normal they're just boring. And it's like, well, how, how do you get into a peak experience? How do you get towards something? 
which is higher, which, which you open up to awe. And that's why people turn to these institutions. That's why people turn to these structures. It's like, well, if you want some excitement in your life, have you conformed to the things, to the people or the communities that offer that to you? And have you really committed deeply to it? Have you gone in and said, yes, I'm going to do every, sing- every single thing that they say to me? Every single thing that they do, I will follow. And I'll really put myself into it. So that's some food for thought. And the last quote from this book by Abraham Maslow that I'd like to share with you goes like this. And this is where he's, he's still talking about the religious experience or the truth or the peak experience, the mystical experience. Quote, Not only this, but it is also increasingly developing that leading theologians and sophisticated people in general define their God not as a person, but as a force, a principle, a gestalt quality of the whole of being an integrating power that expresses the unity and therefore the meaningfulness of the cosmos, the dimension of depth, etc. At the same time, scientists are increasingly giving up the notion of the cosmos as a simple kind of machine like a clock or as a congregation of atoms that clash blindly, having no relation to each other except push and pull, or as something that is final and eternal, and it is, and that is not evolving or growing. As a matter of fact, the 19th century theologians also saw the world in a similar way as some inert set of mechanisms, only for them there was someone who set them in motion. It was this, yeah, the, the, the whole thing of Newtonian physics is a bit of a tangent, but the point here that, that I'm trying to get into is this idea of God and the definition of God is not a person, but is of a force. So, just like you need to have a sophisticated answer to the question, what is religion? You also need to have a sophisticated answer to this question, what is God? What does this word God mean? Where does it come from? Why do we have this word? And when it comes to values, well, values, when we say it's important to have a sophisticated answer to God and religion, that really only gets at words. That only gets at psychology and your way of expressing your beliefs. When it comes to values, you not only have to talk about them well, but you also have to have an experiential connection with it. And there are lots of things we can do to put you in touch with your values. There are lots of core questions you can ask, like, what is important to you? What do you spend your time pursuing? What do you think would be a good thing if it happened to you? What would you like more of in your life? There are all sorts of these questions that that get at revealing what your value structure is. And then, finally, now this is the big one, peak experiences. So it's not enough to be able to 
have sophisticated answers as to what is a peak experience. Now, here today, all we've been doing is talking. All this is just words about peak experiences. There have been no instructions of how to create one. Well, I did say go and conform to an institution. And I didn't even say which ones. But that's at least a little bit. That's a broad idea of some instructions. But the big thing about peak experiences is your personal experience. The, the, the phenomenological thing which is beyond words which you can't put into words. When was the last time in your life when you had a moment where you were speechless? The ah moment. That's what I'm talking about. That's when the peak experience is starting to whisper. That's when it's starting to to grow, to murmur for you. So those sorts of moments will will tell you where you need to go next. So I think that covers all I'd like to say for now about the book Religions, Values and Peak Experiences by Abraham Maslow. And what we can do, which we always do in these episodes, or what I've been doing recently with these episodes, is we end with a few minutes of silence. So if it's comfortable for you to do so, stop what you're doing, close your eyes, sit down, and we'll just have a few minutes of meditation. It's only a couple of minutes. And just be quiet and let the sounds of your thoughts relax. Let your body relax. And that's all I have to say for now.